in Hebrews 11. Um, we have plowed through Hebrews 11, you know, all summer long. We're going to continue there, wrapping it up here pretty quickly um, in the next couple of weeks. But it's been phenomenal and challenging um, all along the way. I hope it's been encouraging and challenging for you also. Um, Pastor Jared mentioned it a second ago. I want to remind you, you guys have on your chairs these little flyers, and it kind of tells you a little bit about our new staff person that's going to be here next week. Um, and then on the back, there are some prayer requests or prayers that we can pray. We're going to end our time today uh, praying with each other as we kind of jump back into school um, and get back into the rhythm of school, and so many people are going to be doing different things, and you know, there's all kinds of concerns and things, so we're going to end our time with some prayers or some prayers on the back. I want you to take this home with you, and just this one week, add this to your prayer list, okay? Um, we'll pray for Sam and Lauren as they join us, and then pray for all of us as we're going back into the, the school rhythm and however weird it's going to be um, this year, and difficult and challenging it might be. Um, but do some prayer requests that we can have and share um, with each other as we go into that. Um, and then I want to also remind you, or just to let you know that um, this week we'll be delivering everything you've brought for life's purpose um, as we partner with them and they go back to school. Um, and you guys have brought all kinds of things to bless them. We're going to take all that to them this week. And then also this week we're going to partner with uh, our, um, our friends over at, at Chick-fil-A, which sounds kind of weird. Um, but we've had a long-standing relationship with um, Court Graves and the two Chick-fil-A's right around us. And uh, we're going to take them um, lunch and just bless them. But again, just to let you know that you guys make any kind of community outreach project that we do or whatever, you guys make that possible. Um, so thank you for um, allowing us to do those kinds of ministries and participating in all that stuff. Um, so Hebrews chapter 11, um, we'll be kind of at the end. He's sort of wrapping up his argument um, that he's been making in chapter 11 here. Uh, we've been talking about all summer long building faith. Uh, at least this is what I've tried to talk to you about and what I think our, our speakers have been trying to give to you, um, is building faith. And I would say we're, we're kind of, it feels like we're swimming upstream, and we'll talk about that, some specifics, why that is um, today. But we, we're talking about building faith in a culture just a general culture, and then I think within our Christian culture that really doesn't require very much of us to claim that we're Christians. Um, it just doesn't mean very much to claim to be a follower of Christ in our world, both in the general culture and then I think in our Christian sort of subculture also. And that can present some challenges to us, okay, as we try to develop our faith, which we'll talk about specifically. So maybe to help you understand, as we talk about faith, and we're really going to drill down into this today and really, really define this today, faith is not a deeply held conviction of beliefs, and it is not a sincerely or a sincere internal devotion to someone. So we're not talking about being convinced of a set of beliefs. And we're not talking about being really internally committed to something. We're talking about faith and faithfulness, and it's all um, tied into action. So you can say you believe something all day long. Um, you can be really committed internally to something all day long. Um, but unless your actions reflect that, I don't know what you really believe. Matter of fact, your actions are probably preaching to me what you actually believe. So I think that this, these actions can be both proactive and reactive. 
you can have a set of beliefs that are so strong, so firmly convinced of them in your heart, that before you even get into a circumstance, you will know what you're going to do. You can be sure that you will behave a certain way when you get into a circumstance because you're so utterly convinced that something is true. Now for me, that is the most mature form of Christianity there is. The most mature form of Christian faith is, I am convinced this is true, I don't know what tomorrow holds, no matter what I walk into, this is how I'm going to behave, because I believe this about Jesus Christ and about God and about his word. So my circumstances aren't dictating what I'm doing or how I'm believing. I've already determined that. I'm just going to walk into the circumstance and see where that leads me. So that's proactive. Then there's reactive. I think we have found ourselves in a very reactive time over the last six months, right? Who could have ever predicted that this is what 2020 was going to look like, right? That this is where we would be, that these circumstances would be just piling on top of each other, right? Um, just on top of us over and over and over again. So we've been reacting to a lot of things, but you can still be so utterly convinced that God is true, that his word is right, that he will be faithful to you, that even when you have to react to certain things, your reactions will be a certain way because they've already been sort of predetermined. That's faith. I believe these things. I believe God to be true. Therefore, no matter what life brings to me, this is how I'm going to behave. These are my actions that are going to flow from what I say that I believe. We're going to see God's hand in all of it. We can face real death, real persecution, real sorrow, real loss with hope and trust. That is faith. That's the faith that's being described to us, given to us here in Hebrews 11 that we've been trying to build in you all summer long. So I think there are some challenges to how um, we are trying to build faith. Things that keep us, that make it harder for us to, to build a faith that can stand I think we have some unique challenges. My argument is going to be this. The biggest challenge you as an American Christian will face to building a faith that can stand no matter what is not your trouble. It's not going to be your suffering or the hardness of your life. The biggest struggle that you will face as an American Christian to build a faith that can stand will be your prosperity. No matter how much you think you have today, or how little you think you have today, you are filthy rich compared to 98% of the world's population. Like filthy rich, dirty rich. You throw food away, don't you? You are filthy rich. You pour out clean water, don't you? You're filthy rich. If you own a car, you are ridiculously rich. You understand what I'm saying? And that will be the thing that keeps you from building a strong faith in Jesus Christ. As desperately as we want God to keep us comfortable, it is the very thing that argues against us having a faith that can stand when things fall apart. Your prosperity, my prosperity, will make it very difficult to build this faith. There was a guy, many knows this person, he was a, an intern at the church we grew up at, Mike Ayers. And Mike is now pastoring a church on the north side of town here, and, and we talk every now and then, and he said this, and I'm like, dude, I am stealing that, okay? So here's what Mike said, and I totally agree with it. The challenge of building an authentic disciple of Jesus in this day and age doesn't come primarily from a spiritually lost world. The challenge is cultural Christianity. It's first world Christianity. 
It's Christianity saturated with comfort and prosperity and self-absorption. Where faith, God, and his church are an inconvenience, a bother, and an interruption. Now, I can say it because I didn't say it. Mike said it. So if you get mad, I'm going to give you his email address. You can write him, okay? But I think he's absolutely right. We have no idea what to do when troubles come because we are so busy insulating ourselves from trouble. And you and I have the capacity to do it, do we not? I don't know if I really have to trust God to put a pool in my backyard. I can just pay the pool guy to put a pool in my backyard. I don't know if I really have to trust God to go buy more clothes that I don't need. I can just go buy more clothes that I don't need. And that will be the thing that keeps us from exercising faith so that when struggles come, we know how to respond. We've, we won't have exercised our faith muscles to be ready for when that struggle comes. So that's the challenge we face. As we talk about faith, as you think about faith today, because, man, we're just going to get punched today, a lot of us, with, with our belief and, and um, what we're putting our faith in. And as we struggle with that, I want you to ask yourself, what is it in me that's clinging on to being safe, comfortable, secure, that keeps me from exercising faith muscles so that when struggles come, I'm ready, I'm worked out, I'm prepared, right? Let's pray real quick, if you would. We just pray for the Lord to give you the gift of faith, because I do think it's a gift. I don't think biblical faith is something you muster up or something you create. I think it's a gift from God, so pray. God, give me faith, trust, maybe that's a better word. Let me trust you. Give me the gift of trust. And then second, give me the gift of courage so that when you do speak, when it is clear what you want from me, give me the courage to do it. And then thirdly, pray, God, give me faithfulness so that every decision I make, every choice I make during the day, during the week, looks like I trust you reflects the fact that I trust you. So God, give me trust and give me courage and make me faithful. God, do these things in us today as we look at these people in Hebrews 11, these great examples. You know, we pray amen. So Hebrews 11:32 says, uh, what more shall I say, the author says, for time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. We're like, yes, give me that. This is the Christianity that I want. These three verses, right? 32 through 35a, <laughs> just the first part of verse 35. Give me that kind of Christianity. We are all going to walk through difficult things. We talked about this last week, and I'm going to really talk about it today. We're going to walk through difficult, hard, painful, struggling times in our lives. And last week I made a comment that God puts us in those situations so that our faith is on display. And somebody asked me a question, which was a great question. I want to clarify I think it's important, actually. Does God put us in struggles and trials so that our faith is seen or so that his glory is made known? And I actually think this matters. 
Okay, it's not splitting hairs. I think this matters, and let me just kind of clarify that a little bit. Does God put me in struggle, places of pain, so that my faith can be on exhibit, or so that his glory can be seen? I'm going to ask you some questions, and then we'll kind of wrap it up. How is God's greatness, his beauty, his magnificence, and his power best seen? Is it through burning bushes and divided seas and defeating lions and bringing people back from the dead? Or is it that when trials come and you get that terrible phone call in the middle of the night and tribulations by day and an old man in the middle of that says, I will trust you for my, Lord, for my son, Lord. And another man says, I will trust that you see my sacrifice as worthy. And a teenage boy says, I will trust that God is great and worth standing up for and that he will strike down this giant with a stone. And a teenage girl that says, I will trust this baby is from you and I will praise you in this pregnancy. Or our Savior who says, I will trust that the cross is the best way to save your people and I will become sin and I will die for them. Where is God's glory best seen? God's greatness is best seen when his people trust him and walk with him no matter what, no matter how long, and no matter the outcome. God puts you in those situations so that your faith can be on exhibit so that his glory can be seen. Is it either or? No, it's both and. So that your faith would be an example to others, your faith would be a testimony to the faithless, and so that God's glory is best seen. I, I, I thought about this. He mentions in this little passage as he's reading through all these people he says they quench the power of fire by faith they quench the power of fire every commentator you read every pastor who's preached this says that that's a reference to the old testament story of the three boys that go the hebrew boys that go to the fire the furnace i'm not going to recap that but they're going to be persecuted killed because they won't bend their knee to a foreign king the foreign king says bend your knee call me god worship me or die in the fire and the response is, can we think about that? <laughs> they did. They said, we'd like to think and pray about that. And they come back and they say this, our God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, we will not bow the knee. Put us in the fire. What amazing New Testament faith that is from these Old Testament three Hebrew boys. God's glory is best seen when his people walk with him through every circumstance, no matter what, no matter how long, no matter the outcome. Faith on display, God's glory clearly seen. Amen? So that's one clarification I wanted to make. There's a lot of principles that, that come out of these last several verses as he wraps up, so I'll talk about a couple of them. The second one is this, Christian faith is rooted in reality. Christian faith doesn't allow us to deny reality. And that is one of the accusations thrown at Christianity. And it has been for probably about, about a thousand years, 800 years, but in particular since the Enlightenment, that we deny reality. We try to paint a picture of a world that will never exist. We live in a different place. We don't deal with the true struggles, pains of the world around us. True Christian faith does not allow us to deny reality. It is based in in reality, in the real world that is all around us. 
Christian, true Christian faith calls us to face real life challenges with prayer, right thinking, trusting in God, and daily choices that line up with what we say we believe. So I think in Christianity sometimes, we don't want to give people a false picture of Christianity, okay? Which I think we've been horribly guilty of in the West and in America in particular. It's a very American gospel. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a very American gospel. And it's this. It's this idea that somehow or another becoming a Christian means that you're going to have your best life now. And I say that on purpose. Somehow or another becoming a Christian means, and this is what we're selling people. We're telling them that if you become a Christian, your life the next day will be better than it was the day before. There is nothing in scripture that holds to that. Matter of fact, I would say Jesus actually sold a very different kind of gospel, right? Where he said, if you follow me, they're going to hate you the same way they hated me. There is nothing in the New Testament that should lead us to sell this idea to people. That if you become a Christian, your life is better. Matter of fact, I would say following Jesus is much harder than just being a sinner. You just leave me alone, let me do what I want to do, that's easy. Following Christ, denying myself, saying no to the world, battling sin, living for holiness, that's tough. There's a bait-and-switch Christianity that we've allowed ourselves to get roped into, even within evangelicalism, where we talk about as if somehow or another your life is going to be better just because you follow Jesus. No, it'll be more tolerable, maybe. He'll give you strength that you wouldn't have in other circumstances and other ways. He'll see you through when nothing else will see you through, but your circumstances may not change one iota. And they might get harder because you're following Christ. So we want to avoid that kind of Christianity. We also don't want to give people a Christianity that's powerless and weak and it's defeated and it's daily Christianity, it's daily expression is just kind of a bummer. We don't want to give that to people either. We want a faith that can stand through pandemics and elections and stock market swings and sickness and success and possessions beyond imagination. And in this text, it's giants and enemies and fire and sword and torture and lions. We want a faith that will stand in those circumstances. Faith doesn't deny pain and challenges of the day, and it doesn't become, it doesn't get lost in bitterness because life is hard. Faith leads us to make daily decisions that trust God. Whether it's our money or our time or our future or our relationships, they are all rooted in, all those choices are rooted in, I just trust God. He's going to see me through no matter what. Therefore, I will live a particular way. That's faith. So after we see this and we're like, yay, I love being a Christian, verses 32 through 35, and stopping mouths of lions and beating fire and not dying at the edge of a sword. I love that. The author makes a hard transition, at least to a Western ear. He makes a really hard transition, but it's seamless for him. And I think it's actually really important. Look at verse 35. Receive back their dead by resurrection. Now listen, what greater thing is there for a woman to gain back than her dead child? We're like, this is the apex of Christian living. Dead people coming back from the grave. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 35, others were tortured, 
not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Like, oh, I don't like that part. (laughs) Can we not read, can we just X that part out? And I really like the first part. He makes a, to the western ear, that's a, it's almost like he's contrasting two groups of people. Like we would think the first group was one group and the second group was another group. And he's contrasting them. But that's not what's happening at all. He's actually tying them together. So listen, if you're reading this and you're a thinking Christian, you have to start to think, well, apparently he's not talking about their circumstances. He's not talking about what's happening in their lives so much as he's talking about what's happening while they're there. The commonalities between these people aren't what's happening in their lives. It's by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Faith over and over and over and over again in this text. So what we see here is that faith can move mountains. The first three or four verses, that's what it's, man, faith can move mountains. We're like, yes, hallelujah, amen, faith can move mountains. But these last three or four verses... Faith empowers you to stand when mountains fall. And to believe that you will stand with God when you fall, even when you die. You will fall, but you will not stay down. You will live with God. And faith says, no matter what, I will stand with God, whether it's here or there. Here's another one. This is going to blow some of our theology out of the water. Faith doesn't determine whether or not I escape suffering. God does. Now, for some of you, I mean, like some of our very popular evangelical teachers and writers and book and authors, this flies in the face of what many of them are teaching us today. Faith doesn't determine whether or not I escape suffering. God does. Faith thinks about life and clearly determines this whether I live by faith or I die by faith God will be faithful to his promises to me he will sustain me with grace for my suffering he will give me power to love people and forgive them he will take my blood and have it be a testimony for other people to see his greatness and for eternity he will give me the forgiveness of Jesus and life with God that is faith So faith doesn't determine whether or not your circumstances are going to change. God does. And some of us are like, oh my gosh, Pastor Joe, that is so hard to hear and it doesn't match up with my favorite teacher. Favorite teacher needs to read scripture, the entirety of scripture, a great systematic theology will not allow you to land on somewhere that says your faith changes your circumstances. Verse 35, man, faith is convinced. How are these people doing this? Like, how do these people face this? How do they face these lions and fire and the sword? Now listen, this is what I want you to wrap your minds around. This author isn't talking hypothetically. He's talking about real fire, real swords, real lions, real death, actual death. How are these people, 
able to face lions, tigers, you know, bears, whatever, fire, swords? How are they able to face that if they're living for this world? If this is my best life, how do you go through those kinds of trials and hold on to faith? What are you trusting God for at that point? It ain't getting any better when that lion takes the first chunk out of you. Faith is convinced that God is better than anything. It's absolutely convinced of that. This is at least, I've got them written out here, I'm not going to read them. Chapter 11, verse 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verses 13 through 16, verse 26, verse 35. All these people who stand in the face of just the craziest things in life, they're able to do it because they have their eyes set on something else. The affections of their heart have been placed somewhere else. They see something else that is greater than what they're going through. More valuable, more precious, more beautiful than what they could gain or potentially lose in this life. That's what's giving them the strength to hold on. So the, in, the inaccurate statement would be, God loves me, so he's going to rescue me. The verse, first three verses, yes. The last three verses, no. God loves me, so he will rescue me. What's more appropriate would be to say, God loves me, and there is a life that is better than anything in this life. There is a God who is better than anything in this life. Therefore, I will trust him and hold on to him, because if I lose this life, he's better. He's greater. Otherwise, how do we explain, if you're living for this life, if you think Christianity is all about this world, how do you explain things like there's a woman named Blandina, B-L-A-N-D-I-N-A. This is about 110. It's, it's maybe 15 years after the Apostle John dies and wraps up the book of Revelation. Very, very close to Jesus, okay? 60 years removed from, 70 years from Jesus' time on earth. She's a, a Christian slave. She's very frail. Apparently, people wrote about her early, and, and the other slaves were worried about her because she was so, so tiny. She's a believer. She gets arrested for her faith. Her, her fellow slaves get arrested because they won't bend their knee to Caesar. They won't bow to him and say that Caesar is Lord, so they get arrested for their Christianity. They say, we're going to feed you to the lions unless you just, all you have to do, Blandina, is bend your knee and say, Caesar is Lord. That's it. She won't do it. They tie her to a stake and they put her in the arena with wild animals. Five days, none of the animals will touch her. Exhausted, dehydrated, they take her down. They say, well, we're going to take you to the next arena and we're going to show you what we're doing to all your friends. We'll quit torturing them if you'll bend your knee and say, Caesar is Lord, and she won't do it. So they tie her up in a net, they let a wild bull run all over her, and she won't die, they have to get a dagger and stab her in the heart. How does a young girl stand in the face of that if this world is what it's about? If this is the greatest expression of Christianity? If you getting married and having kids and having obedient children and having a retirement fund and being comfortable your entire life, if that's what Christianity is, how are you going to stand up when the tiniest thing goes wrong? Much less stand in the face of lions and a dagger at your heart and your friends suffering. 
And there are too many, too many to account for in history who have had their eyes set on something else. God is better. Jesus is better than anything here. How do you account for today, modern day, Christians, our brothers and sisters right now in Syria and in Egypt and Iran and Vietnam who are being daily, regularly abused for their faith, killed and martyred? If, all if we're selling them a gospel that says all you have to do is believe it, preach it, say it, pray it, faith it, and you'll get it. What a crock. And there's nothing in that gospel that gives you power to stand up and say, I'll die for that. Your death becomes the argument against your faith at that point. Faith is convinced that the life that God has for us, whether it's here or for eternity, is better than anything. So we want a faith that's built on that. That we can face death and suffering and pain and we can rest in God because we know him and we love him and he is satisfying our souls more and more every day. If you are more satisfied by the things here than you are with Christ, you will not stand for him. This world will win in your heart. It will win in your actions and your daily choices. Christ has become more and more satisfying for your soul. You have to wean yourself of letting your soul be filled up with the things here and get to know Christ and his beauty and his glory and his majesty and let him fill your soul more and more with his beauty. Psalm 63.3 Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. You have to be convinced that God is better and his ways are better and Jesus is better. That's the only way to live in these last four verses at least, probably the entire chapter 11 of Hebrews. Verse 38, man, that could be its whole own message. These people are abused. They're treated like garbage. They're cut in half with saws. Did you read that? They're cut in half with saws. They're thrown to the lions. They're just the refuse of cultures treating them like trash. We throw you away because you are worth nothing. You're for entertainment purposes now, and that's it. What does God say? The world's not worthy of them. The world says, you're not worthy to be here. God says, no, you're not worthy to have them. I'm bringing them home. The world was not worthy of them because of their faith. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God takes the wise things of this world and he makes it foolishness to save those who believe in him. It's God's upside down way of bringing glory to himself. When his people die like this, when God's people die in faith like this, it's a gift to the world. I had never seen it that way until this week. But when God's people die in faith and they face death, trusting in the Lord, it is a gift to the world. And here's way, basically what their death is saying. Run to God and hold on to him because you're going to die too. But God is better than life. Hold on to him. The world wasn't worthy of their faith. What I want to encourage you with as we kind of wrap up is this, man because there's a lot of bad teaching 
and a lot of us have been infected with it. I don't know another word. These people were not suffering because they lacked faith. If you read, I mean, if we read this passage the right way, it does not say, verses 32 to 35, by faith they stopped the mouths of lions, by faith they didn't get burned up in the furnace, by faith they escaped the sword, but because these people didn't have faith, they got burned up and they died and they were tortured and they were abused. and they were. It doesn't say that, does it? By faith, by faith, by faith. It is not about your circumstances. It's about trusting in God. That's the commonality that these people all have, that regardless of what they were doing or what life brought them, they trusted God by faith. They weren't suffering because they lacked faith. God wasn't upset about their lack of trust so that he's punishing them. Their faith was so great that this world wasn't good enough for them. That means for you and I that your pain and your suffering do not mean that God has abandoned you due to a lack of faith. Man, that needs to be balm to somebody's soul this morning. That needs to lift somebody up in this room and somebody watching online. Your faith during your pain and suffering and your life might be the very thing that God uses to bless somebody else and to perform some act of his love in somebody else's life. I don't understand how you can read Hebrews 11, be true to what it says, let it just say what it says, and hold on to a garbage gospel a garbage version of Christianity that tells you that if you believe it, you'll have it. If you faith it, it'll come to you. If you'll speak it, you'll bring it into existence. How can you believe a gospel or preach or teach a gospel or talk about faith in such a way that completely contradicts, not just, I would say, Hebrews chapter 11, but really the whole point of the book of Hebrews? How do you go to Old Testament Jeremiah? Has anybody read the book of Lamentations? Anybody? How do you go to Jeremiah and say, listen, brother, if you just claim God's blessings, this will be your best life? It's a denial of an entire chunk of the Old Testament that Jeremiah has given us. How, ready, if you really want to get punched in the solar plexus, how do you go our Savior hanging on the cross and say, Jesus, you just need to claim the full life of God? I'm pretty sure Jesus was tempted with that while he was on the cross, and he denied it. He said, no, that's not of the Lord. And yet, that's exactly what we're being sold. I think that if you're in that camp, or if you've let that infect your theology to some degree, my personal opinion is that if you read Hebrews chapter 11, if you, read, if you go read the story of all these people listed in Hebrews chapter 11 from the Old Testament, every single one of them is an embarrassment to your faith. Your version of Christianity cannot stand side by side with what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. That whole, and we're just going to call it what it is, that prosperity gospel, guys, listen, all it is is a very thinly disguised version of what's called new thought which is an old heresy way of thinking that's about 150 years old now. That's all it is. It's just the power of the mind. It's Tony Robbins if he'd been baptized with better hair in a TV station. That's all it is. 
It's a desire for us to control our lives and God. This is where I give a little, I want to give some grace to the average person who believes some of the prosperity gospel stuff. When, you're, when your life's falling apart, you're looking for something to get control of. And the prosperity gospel tells you, you are in absolute control. You're in total control. Just believe. Just have faith. You control the outcome. So it's a desperate desire for us to get control of our lives and then ultimately to control God. I push this button, I pull this lever on the slot machine, and I have to get all crowns. The bonus has to be mine. God owes me. Okay? This is our desperate desire to make sense of things, that if I follow a to-do list, when things don't make sense, just give me something to do and make sure that everything falls into place. I kind of get that, but that's what it is. It's an attempt to explain human suffering with man in the middle and not God in the middle. And I want to tell you something else. If you're clinging to any aspect of prosperity theology, it doesn't aid in your faith. It adds to the ruin of your faith. And every time you run up against some bit of pain and suffering, all fingers will be pointed at you. And you will have no hope at the end of the day. It is a hopeless version of Christianity. And we need to stay far away from it. And Hebrews chapter 11 will not let you go there with the gospel. So we end it here today with, well, Pastor Joe, what is faith then? How do I know that I'm being faithful? What does it look like? What am I supposed to aim toward? If that's the, the bad side, what am I supposed to point my heart toward? How do I know that I'm being faithful? I think Sam Storms, another author, said this. He said, faith is clinging to God whether he parts the Red Sea for you or you find yourself living penniless in a cave. Faith is hoping in God whether you are promoted and praised or persecuted and afflicted. Faith is trusting God whether you are delivered from the sword or you die by its sharp edge. That's faith. And we're like, well, Pastor John, that's the faith I want. I want that kind of faith. I want, yes, verses 32 to 35, I want to split the Red Sea and walk through the fire and, and fight lions. and none of the, I want that, I do. But God, when, when, when everything falls apart, I want a faith that doesn't fall apart. I want a faith that stands. How do I get that? Well, the first thing I would ask you is this. What are you doing in your life right now that requires faith? I am not asking what you're reacting to that requires faith. I'm asking you what you're doing on purpose that requires faith. And I'm telling you, we're comfortable. We don't, need, we don't need faith. We can do a lot of life in America without trusting God. And that sounds harsh, but we do it on a regular basis. What are you doing right now that requires faith? So here's, I'll just give you one. Man, this is going to sound very preachery, churchy. So for some of you, let's just take 10% out of the, the, the equation, okay? You're not giving regularly to anything, Period. You tip God every now and then. When you get a little extra cash, grandma sends you a check for your birthday, you give a little bit to the church or some other ministerial organization. Would it require faith of you to say, I'm going to give away 5% of my income to some charitable cause, hopefully for the kingdom of God? Would that stretch you? Then try that. 10%, 20%, 30%, half of what you own? What are you doing right now that requires faith? What about your time? Well, if we don't go to every soccer game, and if we don't play every basketball game, if we don't go to every baseball practice, my kid's going to be scarred when they grow up. 
What if you just took one off and you sent them to a mission trip? What if your family went to, on a mission trip together instead of soccer camp this year? Instead of volleyball practice? Would that require some faith? This isn't hard. This isn't difficult. It just means we have to step outside of some comfort, right? So my question for you is, you want a faith that stands no matter what. You want a faith that defeats lions and kills giants. What are you doing right now that requires faith? You can't show up at the football game and put the pads on and expect not to get killed if you didn't go to practice for the last six months. What are you doing right now that requires faith on purpose, like you've determined this is going to stretch us and it's going to cause us to trust Jesus, so we're going to do it together. Financially, family, time, whatever it is. A couple of other things. These are just principles out of this, this text. Are you conquering sin in you and battling sin around you? You want to stand on the world stage and be seen as somebody that conquers giants? What about horrible allegory, but what about your personal struggles? Are you fighting sin in your own life? Some of us have those real giants in our lives, like our own sin that just slays us every time. Are you battling that? Are you overcoming that? How is God going to use you on the stage if you're not going to be able to do that stuff? Battle sin, conquer sin. What about living in righteousness? Living in holiness and honesty and integrity and ethicality in your words and your actions and then the intents of your heart. What about living under the promises of God in your personal challenges and fears every day? We already did this the last two weeks. You have things you're terrified of losing. You have things you're terrified will never happen in your life. God's already spoken to every one of them. Do you know what he said and are you living like it's true? This is how you become a person of faith. Daily choices that line up with what you say you believe about God. God, give us that kind of faith, amen, that stands no matter what. Father God, we ask for this faith once again. We thank you for this chapter that doesn't let us off the hook, that doesn't sell us a false view of Christianity, of walking with you. Father, we ask that you would um, give us this faith that stands, a faith that, yes, moves mountains. We've all got mountains in our lives we want to see moved. Move them heal, restore, break a heart, restore a heart, bring back from the dead. Whatever it is, God, we want to see that kind of stuff happen. We trust you to do that in your will. But God, when things fall apart and things are hard and we don't know if we can get up again, God, I pray that we trust you and we would hold your hand and we would just take another step of faith today. Stretch us in this area, grow us, mature us, give us this kind of faith, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Man, I love you all. Great to see you. That was a hard one today. Thanks for enduring. Um, Pastor Jared's going to lead us.